0: Probably better that way, because I feel like I'm the least design uh, knowledgeable person in the room, so I'll let the the light shine on you guys, welcome. Um, We were talking about um, both myself, uh, Bruce, I met uh, Orit uh, last night as well, Michael we haven't met, Sandra we did as well, and Teresa, welcome. I mean, for me, design has always been about sort of like a journey, and you've been here. The, the audience has listened to you guys uh, previously during this week and, and, and this morning. Wh- where does the journey start for design from each one of your perspectives? I'd love to know that, just to kick it off. And then I don't know if we can open to the, uh, to the audience for questions,
1: but we'll see. If you one of you. Yeah. We're going this way? Okay. Now I can see you. Um, so, I mean, for me, uh, it all uh, really begins on uh, what's meaningful to people. Um, you have to understand uh, what people truly desire, uh, what tr- people truly value. Uh, it's not about the technology, although for a lot of people, it is the technology that's valuable, but for 95% of the population. Uh, It's not the technology, it's something else. It's what's truly meaningful uh, in that I think most of the people on this panel are going to kind of agree. And from there, you go to the stories they tell to express what's meaningful to them. And then you build and design things. So that's the beginning for me.
2: Yeah, for me, I would say design starts with good problem solving is I think design is really applicable when we're dealing with really messy, ill-structured problems where we don't know uh, what our outcome is going to look like. We don't really know what the constraints are yet. And we need to dig in and really learn what, uh, what's our ideal situation here, and how do we allow this to take shape. Yeah, I mean,
3: basically I agree. It's um Understanding uh, people's needs, but um, it's also understanding—understanding—it's uh, uh, <laughs> um, it's understanding humans. So it's not only their needs; it's also their interests. Um, that's. What I did.
4: <laughs> you look good, Bruce. <laughs> now I can engage with the audience without <laughs> being Can you tell he's from New York? For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Man's got style. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I'd echo everything that uh that my esteemed colleagues here have shared. Maybe the thing that I would add is to me designs about conscious creation. And obviously the the important word there being conscious. Right? So Really being more discerning, uh, looking at intention, what are we creating and why? And uh, one of the things that I'm especially intrigued and passionate and also concerned about uh, for all of us as designers and innovators right now uh, is what I would call the ethics of the future, Like, what are we actually building? Because we have more power in our hands than ever before the things that we can do, lower costs of entry, the possibilities are endless. And we don't really have much of a vocabulary around the ethics of design, or ethics of technology, or of innovation, and so on. Um, But I I, I think that this movement of human-centered design, of design thinking, is the doorway into that. It's getting us all to become more discerning and thoughtful about what are we actually building.
5: What can I say? <laughs> I've said it all. Um, well, I, I think that I'm really glad to see that the word design is being used in contexts that were n- are not exclusively about designers. I like it when it becomes something that a tool that is manifest in a word that people think they can use in their lives, in everyday life. It's it's an approach. It's a, a thoughtful, intentional approach to solving a problem. And for people like me who deal not just with language, but mostly with language, design is also about the words you use. So for me, it's a way of solving problems in a, in a smart, thoughtful way, a responsible way as well, as you, as you mentioned. But it could apply to your life. You don't have to be a designer to think like a designer, I hope.
0: I mean, you're mentioning uh, human-centric design. I, w- I was under the impression that humans were always on, at the center of design, right? You were designing for the user, for the for the experience. Is that is that not not true? Is, that, is has there been a change in, in that process? Where did it start? Yeah,
4: it's a it's a great question. I you know it's. I would say the irony to me is we're at a time in history where we're learning how to become human again. Uh, Goes by many names, like the humanization of business. You know, in many ways you look at the way we did business for certainly the last 50 to 100 years. And there was a mindset that was very mono-dimensional. It was very extractive. Uh, The only measurement of success was profit. And conversation is evolving, it's expanding. So, you know, is human-centered design the perfect term, all right? It goes by many different names. Obviously, anything that you name human-centered sometimes can feel a bit pretentious or really, do we, do we have to give it that language? And yet, you'd be surprised, I mean, you guys know this. I mean, think of how often you've been in business, business meetings and situations where what maybe we take for granted about being human-centered really actually there isn't a language or a vocabulary for it in the boardroom. And I feel like what's happening across our field right now is the development of that language, of those tools. And it's one that obviously is going to keep evolving as, uh, as we all learn and apply that language.
3: Um, I think that um, the conscious transformation happened between uh, hum- human-computer interface design and then human-centered design. Even though I think it 's a very large concept, <laughs> and mm-hmm. i don 't think we 're there, um, I think we have a long way to go, and I think that um, um, I think in order to do that, you need a lot of time to observe and to understand, and I think that um, all the current processes don't allow for that today <laughs> enough. <laughs> I would like to push that forward so because if you really want to do human centered design then we need time to understand more. So.
2: <laughs> I think we see a lot of examples of not human-centered design. I mean, I think, I can't argue that Wells Fargo was human-centered when they opened accounts for customers that they didn't know they had, or that Volkswagen was very human-centered when they designed their, tat, their cars to cheat on uh, standards tests. Um, and I think we see that pretty often, is that we look, we, be, we tend to be more business-centered than customer-centered or human-centered. And so while it's great that we are seeing a a lot of growth in human-centeredness, we have a long way to go. Um, And I think we're just starting to understand what it means to be human-centered when it comes to developing products.
1: Um, Exactly. I completely agree with you. Uh, The last couple of years, I've been teaching uh, at Parsons in New York, which is basically a fashion school. So my very first year, I came in and Hence the hat. Hence the hat. (laughs) We'll see the light. This is bad design. So, um, uh, and I, I think it was the first year I was there. I came into class and I started talking about user-centered design and design thinking, and uh, you know, I was very excited about it. And I could see a sea of faces sort of looking at me like this and like that. Uh, These were mostly fashion students. And at some point, I finally said. What are you looking at me that, in that funny way? And they said, well, you know, we're fashion designers. We all have always designed for the body, for the person, for the user. It, this is nothing new. This is like a thousand years old, Bruce. Um, and I realized, yeah, uh, for whole areas of design, they have been designing for people who use them. It's like naturally. But for engineers, who are really into technology, they basically design for their technology. That's what they're into. And uh, the paradigm for them is to create something really cool and then throw it out there to see if someone will use it. And that's why user-centered design is so new to Silicon Valley or technologists. Uh, It's new to them. But design has a whole space where people have been designing for people for a long time. So we're now at that point where, certainly in the US, user-centered design is super big, huge. After 20 years of pushing on the door, the door is really open. uh, And that's great. But uh, it's open for a rather limited segment of people who would rather deal with algorithms than with other people. And we have to keep that in mind. So,
0: we've been uh, developing a a bunch of programs with C-level executives and board level uh, in in Miami, and one of the things that it starts coming out is the word design, which is probably something they wouldn't even mention in any of their meetings. They're starting to be concerned, namely because of of, probably one of the biggest triggers was generational impact of clients such as millennials. that, that privileged very much th- their experience in a very conscious way. And another one was technology, very presence uh, of technology. Um, so how do, you, um, how do you ignite a, um, a design-driven culture within, a, within a, a company? How do you make that uh, a reality?
2: Um,
3: by getting people involved from the very beginning. Um, there's methods that, um, um, that I feel can get, because c- I, I feel like you have to give people credit, okay? And I feel like a lot of the, I don't work for a big organization, thank God. But <laughs> that's
0: why I have my own comfort. But you have clients that are big organizations, <laughs> but right? But I do work yeah. with big organizations. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of the day, people care about what they do, okay? And they care about their work, and they have a lot of um, insight that they can give you. And so you have um, a few methods that you can use in order to get people involved. And you'll, you know, what is design thinking? It's also creative thinking, and everyone's creative. So you have to get them on board. You have to um, brainstorm together. You know, you have to listen to everyone. And um, you have to get everyone who's involved to commit. (laughs) How, How do you do that? And then they feel like they're part of it. I think that's the idea, and there's many there's different methods for that so
0: you think there's a role that um just asking you because um there's a lot of uh, evangelizing uh, in, in cer- within a certain uh, group of people that still see it in a very remote way design is something that it's not embedded in on the everyday on the processes on the culture of the company, so on a broader uh, Spectrum. How would you, you know, make that uh, sort of like a successful product design uh, uh, culture?
4: Well, I mean, we're talking culture here, so I, I can't help but bring this back to stories. You know, if you want to learn about a culture, you listen to the stories, and if you want to change a culture, you need to change the stories, because culture literally is the stories we share in common. Uh, so, what what really excites me is that. And certainly uh, within many of the Fortune 500s that I work with, design thinking is at the top of the list of what they want their managers to be learning. And you'd expect that, you know, with some of our clients in Silicon Valley, like Google and Facebook and Genentech and so on, that's kind of to be expected. But we also have clients like Deloitte or Bloomberg. Right? Pretty buttoned-up cultures who are saying design thinking is what we want our people to learn. So I think that's the beginning, and, and everybody here and many of you, we're all evangelists for this. And, and so I think the second half of that equation is then like living and embodying it. You know, how do you bring the principles of design thinking to life in what you're creating? Because it speaks for itself. When we see a product or we see a presentation or we see a service that, that has uh, an awareness towards design, like on the receiving end as an audience, we get lit up about it. And the same thing happens inside the boardroom. Uh, it's just that, you know, the modern corporation is built on the principle of risk management, right? It's, I mean, the first corporate charter was built as an insurance policy for sending goods across the seven seas. So, You know, we have a lot of old systems about managing risk, and uh, we live in a world that's about uncertainty, about transparency, about change, uh, which is, I think, part of the power of design-centric, you know, creative process, uh, which is giving voice to how to be more iterative, uh, how to experiment, how to take risks, and so on. But that kind of culture change, uh, you know, doesn't happen in weeks or months. It, It takes years.
2: I think it's actually been taking decades. I mean, I think businesses are not just organized around preventing risk, but around optimizing for efficiency. And this goes back to the Frederick Taylor era of believing that our organizations are machines and that the best way to run them is to tell people what to do and have them do it as efficiently as possible. This is completely incompatible with the way that we design. I think this is going back to what you were saying earlier, that we are all designers. If you look at any five-year-old on the planet, they create things, and they're creative. And then we send them to school, where we teach them how to be cogs in a machine. And then we send them to organizations, and we ask them to do the exact same things. And so as our organizations learn about things like design thinking, it's really coming up against decades of culture that is not compatible. And so I think the things that prevent us from being good design organizations is we have to reinvent the way we look at organizations and the way we work together in organizations.
1: Yeah, so um, totally agree again uh, with everything you're saying today. It's wonderful. Um, um, my experience is when you go into a corporation that's been around for more than five or 10 years, uh, and you present them with things, you talk at them, uh, they'll pay you nice money, they'll listen to you. And 95, 97% of the time, they'll continue to do what they do. Uh, You have a much greater chance two ways. One, don't talk to big corporations. Talk to startups. Um, Just demographically, uh, in terms of younger people being much more open to this. They've kind of lived a design life. They've been creating things their whole life. They've had tools their whole life. Uh, Plus, they get it. So younger companies, startups, much more open to it. If you you do have to uh, or want to work within larger corporations, having workshops, doing the experience of design is much more powerful than talking to people about design. Uh, We had an incredible workshop on Wednesday. Um, came up with five great business ideas, seriously, really great business ideas in one day. Um, That experience of going through the process of design, we're not even talking about design per se, is something that is really impactful and and, and very strong. So that seems to work a little bit better in larger corporations than talking to them.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Sandra was was saying yesterday, uh, just to add on, uh um, it was the first time I w- I, I've heard uh, someone involved in the process of billing and designing an invoice, or being concerned with the experience that someone that gets an invoice from a, you know, a large corporation would have, and how impactful that is, and how the message or the story that you're just saying conveys the urgency of response. Or um, and that means that when you're designing, when you're thinking about the process, you need to understand the business as well. From you know,
2: so.
5: I think many of the challenges that we've discussed here uh, relate to the fact that businesses are made of people and people have fears and you have to understand the specific fears of different people they have different concerns and different things that are stopping them from you know, inviting users in. People are so scared of users. They're a nuisance. They they mess things up. Uh, I recently heard about someone in a, a big consulting company doing uh, a customer experience workshop, but please don't bring in any customers. You know, it just messes things up. So, you know, you, I think you have to build this sense of self-efficacy, which is a psychological concept, but the self-efficacy in people that they can do this process So you do the workshops they learn to do it and they can bring these proposals to some sort of board and they can actually face a user and face the feedback so the more they see themselves as able to do it the more open they will be to this kind of processes and when we work we're trying to balance you know we tend towards the user it's natural, right? But we need to balance that with the needs and, and the fears of the business. And that's always a very interesting dialogue. You, know, you can't force anyone, but you can't give up by not representing and advocating for the users. So sometimes we're there in the middle, and pushing, pushing. But it, it's, under, it's very useful to take the conversations all the way up to understand what are you fearing? why is this change so difficult, and what do you want to achieve? And I think that's a very important part of this dialogue. When we think user, user-centered and person-centered, there's people in these organizations at all levels that we need to involve as well.
0: Right. Thank you. Um, um, we're working with a, with a, a large law firm in, in South Florida where they actually started doing uh, workshops internally for their attorneys. Uh, and design thinking, and um, you know they 're trying to uh, ignite innovation within the firm for one simple reason the the, the the basic line of their business is the billing hour, so an attorney charges by the hour and the work they do, and this has been going on uh, at least in the u s for the past three or four decades so it 's really waiting there to be disrupted by something else right so they 're sh- trying to foster the, uh, the the change to come from within when the group of people that for them, design is probably not a, a, a common word, and w- within that, that, that business. So, how do you make? Uh, um, and I'm interested in you know you mentioned Bruce the, the startups, and I work a lot with them as well. They're younger, more pro, more willing, and, and open to implement such practices. But how do you make those? Uh, probably some of them in, in the audience. How do you foster the? Uh, the uh, the design uh, thinking uh, and how do you design the future within these large organizations? How do you where do you start? Where is the the, the first step there? And then we could open the questions to to the public, right? Yeah, I mean, what I'm saying is. I'm trying to understand if uh, you start with the workshops that you mentioned, but how can you, how do you make that embedded into the culture of the company and how do you make that uh, like an ongoing thing?
3: Well, usually they approach you with um, Mm -hmm. an idea or a problem. I mean, it starts, it starts somewhere. And then, um, you know, you find out a little more and you kind of sense it. And maybe they have an idea of what they want to do, but it's not necessarily the right thing. Um, so then you offer and you say, okay, let's do, um, you, know, when you know, when you know enough, you say, okay, let's do, we call it like um, a, product, a project strategy workshop. So you get all the stakeholders involved um, and you do a process where basically like uh, everyone brings their own research to the project and they present their own research. And then you do a creative process that like, Let's everyone understand what we're gonna do, <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. more,
1: yeah.
3: and then we re- we go home and we come back and we say, okay, is this it? Did we all understand? Are we all on the same
0: page? You know, yeah.
3: are we all on the same page? And then they say, well, you know, I don't know, yeah, 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 <laughs> and I think that this is like, I mean, personally, it's been extremely effective because it's like really disrupting their usual workflow, it's getting things done in a shorter amount of time, and everyone feels good. (laughs) I'll
2: jump in. I work with a lot of large companies, and I agree with what Bruce said in sentiment. It's much easier to get a startup to change and to adopt some of these practices, but I, I work with a lot of really large companies, and I see them making these changes as well. And the way that it happens is with a bias towards action. It's one of the things that I love about design thinking. It's something that the Lean Startup is giving us. It's that if we just get teams talking to customers and running experiments, the culture will change. It's really hard not to make decisions that aren't human-centered when you talk to your customers every single week. And it's really hard to ignore what you're learning when you're running experiments every single week. So even in a large organization, I simplify this problem I want to see a team change their behavior week over week to integrate more interaction with their customers and more experiments. And if you do that team by team by team, the culture does change. And it happens
5: a lot faster than you think. And how do you get the board and the, you know, the big guys involved in those things if you're working mainly with teams?
2: Yeah, so obviously there's a tension when a team starts to experiment and talk to customers and they're pushing up the hierarchy saying, hey, what you're telling us to build isn't quite working. Um, but you know, in my experience, most executives, uh, th- even when they're uncomfortable with giving up the decision-making power, uh, if you present them with the data and you start to make the case for, hey, some of the things that we're building aren't quite right, they listen. It's that historically they haven't had access to that type of data. So I tell companies, like someone in my master class on Wednesday asked me, what do you do when you really work in an organization where you're told to build feature A, B, and C, and there's no room for design, and there's no room for experimentation? And I would say, as product teams, we almost always have the ability to add tracking and instrumentation to our products. And even if you can't change what you're building right now, if you start measuring the impact of what you're building right now, you can start to tell that story up the hierarchy. I built what you asked me to build, and it doesn't work. Can we try something else? And usually when that data starts to come in, you open the door, even just a little bit, to let's learn a little bit faster that what we're building isn't working. All
1: right.
0: Thanks, Chris. Uh, we're going to open now for the audience. We have less than 10 minutes, so if anyone has questions, please raise your arm. And someone will go to you with a mic. We have someone over there. Yeah. Do you mind rising? Yeah. Thanks. I can shout. Yeah. So, there's been a lot of agreement on the
4: panel. I'm curious. There's been a lot of agreement on the panel, which is nice to hear and great, and I agree with a lot of it myself. But I'm curious about uh, what you feel like other members on the panel might find cur- controversial and your viewpoints on design and product.
2: <laughs> How much time do we have?
4: 10 minutes, apparently. Less, less. Go, on. go. go. Uh, I'll be real quick here. Uh, Obviously, you guys know my bias on storytelling, and the the world of design uh, really embraces storytelling, uh, but it easily turns into buzzword bullshit bingo. There's a lot of lip service that's paid to storytelling. And even in the design thinking toolkit, storytelling is the frosting on the cake. Right? Once you've gone through the whole product development process, you come out the other side, okay, now we need a story to sell it. And the it, story is not the frosting on the cake, it's the base ingredients. Right? And bringing that awareness and narrative through every piece of all of the other areas of expertise that, that is part of product design and ultimately product adoption. Uh, so, I think there's a huge untapped opportunity there, uh, and, uh, you know, continuing to advocate and bring that forward into uh, our design communities.
3: Um, I agree,
5: (laughs) but my, um,
3: (laughs) my workshop was on that, it was on, um, basically, (laughs) it was, It was basically on uh, um, how we use brand attributes to tell a story, and how we how that applies to the user experience, to designing the user experience. But <laughs> that's I don't think I think that you know our world is like becoming, um, you know, we're becoming sticklers for like dogma and method, and I think that we need to watch out because you know I've had I, I've taught for many 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 years, and like just because you know someone says well this is the method. If someone else does it in a different way, that's fine, too. <laughs> so I think that there's many, many different methods to create great products. And um, probably one of the most important things is just to know who you're working with, and then to understand how you're going to work with them. So,
2: so uh, I'm writing a book, and it's, it demystifies 13 myths that I think people commonly believe. I'm not going to outline all three, 13 of them, but I'm going to start with two that are related to design that I think will get a little bit of disagreement on the panel. Uh, so the first one is uh, brainstorming doesn't work. I mentioned this in my workshop on Wednesday and ruffled a lot of feathers. Uh, we have about 60 years of research. All of it suggests that individuals generate more ideas on their own compared to gr- groups of equal numbers. And uh, we don't like to believe this because we have so many design agencies that use brainstorming as a way of including their clients. It's a fantastic way to include your clients, but if you want to create creative ideas, you should work individually and then share as a group. Uh, So that's the first one. And then the second one is we like to think that product managers own the problem and that designers own the solution. And we also have actually more than 60 years of research, about 200 years of research thanks to Uh, Design fields like architecture that tells us that as we explore the problem space it changes the potential solutions We can explore and as we explore solutions it feeds back into how we understand the problem and when we separate those two uh, Roles across two different people. We we cut off those feedback loops So the reality is we have to collaborate. We can't let product managers on the problem and designers on the solutions
3: Yeah I'll counter you on the brainstorming. And that's because, like, maybe, you know, maybe. But how do you measure that? How do you measure that kind of research? That just seems, like, uh, question, uh, questionable.
2: <laughs> yeah, so the way they measure the research is they take, first, the, the, the way that most of the research was conducted is they take four people in one group and four people in another group. And for the four people in one group, they're working individually. And then the four people over here are working in a group using traditional brainstorming methods. And they look at they have independent judges look at the quantity of ideas generated and the quality of ideas generated. In the research, there's three different dimensions in which creativity is. It's, here's the thing. It's pretty good research. And here's what I'll say. I'll argue the other side. Here's what I'll say. Brainstorming might work if, like this is the design agency argument. If you're trained in brainstorming, it's a skill you have to develop, it might work. OK, I buy that. Where's the research? And here's what really gets me. The Stanford D School, I went to Stanford as an undergrad, and it's still really good, and I learned design there. The Stanford D School proselytizes brainstorming. They're an academic institution. Get their exports to brainstorm as a group and compare it to them brainstorming as an individual. Let's look at the data. But here's the bigger point. Why are we dogmatic about this? Yeah, right?
3: Them. That's the point, is that brainstorming sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Let's maybe. not be dogmatic about it. <laughs>
2: sometimes it works, maybe.
3: Depends who you are. Depends what kind of person you are. You know, depends what your group is like. You know? At the end of the day, it's people, right? So like, it's like how, what, what the best way for them as
2: individuals is to work together.
0: That was a, that was a good
2: one thing really quick i would love to see the data see? <laughs> all i would say is i would love to see the data where brainstorming does work i haven't seen it right I've, i see people saying it works but there's also studies that show that brainstorming makes you feel like it works even when your
5: quality isn't as good can i can i just say something sounds like you're creating like a <laughs> sounds like you're creating a, a false dichotomy here because you can have both in the exactly. same session, right? That's what, how we do it at Claro. Exactly. We start by working individually. Everyone sits in one corner, works individually for quite a bit. And then when we think we run out of ideas, we drive it longer, and then we get together. So you don't have to get rid of brainstorming or, exactly. you know, it's a false dichotomy. There's no research on this. Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that was a really bad boy, good question yeah. <laughs> to start a. So, but I'm with her. Uh, uh, I think brainstorming is, you know, the origin of brainstorming sort of came out of marketing and uh, in the US in the 30s. Uh, there's no real science behind it. And um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, my only experience of brainstorming is that I was thrown out of a brainstorming uh, session at IDEO once. Uh, and The session, they structured it. You can only do yes, uh, yes and, right? It's a building thing. Yes, and. Uh, but I have a yes, but personality. So I kept saying, yeah, but, but, and finally, they just threw me out. So I have kind of a prejudice about that. The other prejudice I have, we'll just talk about prejudices. Uh, so I was a big proponent of design thinking uh, when it came, and it was hugely powerful. Because design thinking basically at that point, sort of, I don't know, late 90s, early aughts, took us into designing experiences and engagements and away from simply designing artifacts. And it was a revolution um, and very powerful. But over about 10 years, it became bureaucratized and fossilized and became a process. Um, and, you know, large corporations, as you know, work by process. And they began taking the process of design thinking and just plugging it in. And they're doing it again. Plug it in, plug it in. We're process people. Give us a process for design, and we'll plug it in. With the assumption is, well, if you plug it in and we move down the funnel, at the end of the funnel, if we do everything right, we're going to have great innovation. Doesn't work that way. You might get some incremental innovation, but you're not going to get anything disruptive. So thinking like a designer is a much better expression for me than design thinking. Uh, you know, putting on a hat because the light was in my eyes, that's a design process, really. Um, but it's not a big funnel of a whole bunch of things that I would call design thinking. So there. All right, guys.
0: With that, we'll give it a wrap. Thank you so much. for.